You're listening to Seed of the Woman, a podcast dedicated to telling the grandest story of all and to exposing the mystery of 666. Seed of the Woman is produced by the Gospel Story Arc Project, using the science of story to better tell who Jesus is. It's your story, too. Hello, everyone. Randall Gilmore here. In this episode, we're going to pause the story to talk about what we've uncovered so far about the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, and the mystery of 666. I think you'll find this interesting as you hear how others are processing the story. Now, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that I'm making available for download PDFs of the transcripts for the podcast. You can find a link in the description that your listening platform provides for each episode. The cost is just $2 for the entire season to help pay for our production costs. In reality, both the Seed of the Woman podcast and the Gospel Story Arc project are only possible because of the generosity of listeners like you. Thank you for helping us better tell who Jesus is using the science of story as we foster appreciative love for Jesus and as we prepare ourselves and others for his return. For more information, go to gospelstoryarc.org. And remember, it's your story too. I'll take a quick break and return in just a moment. Now, in this episode, I'm going to talk with a few others about any questions that they might have arising from the first five episodes of Seed of the Woman. And I think we'll just get started by asking them to introduce themselves. And if they want, they can also share a little about their connection to me. So, Kara, why don't we begin with you? Hi, I'm Kara. I'm Randy Gilmore's daughter-in-law to his second born son. Hi, I'm Dale Gilmore, and I am married to Randall Gilmore. Hi, I'm Ken Powers, and I've known Pastor Randy and Dale for many years now. He was my pastor at Hamilton Hills Baptist Church for several years. Okay, I, I want to thank you guys for coming on this episode, and I want to get right to your questions. So, Ken, why don't you go first? I don't know which podcast it was, but um, it was talking about curses pronounced by God. I think those curses can sometimes apply to humanity as a whole. And uh, it's possibly a reason why you have suffering even among Christians, because we're living in a sin-cursed world. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. I definitely think those curses applied specifically to the serpent, and then to Adam and Eve and the ground, but also to creation and humanity as a whole. So, for example, the curse that God announced against Eve was that she would have pain in childbearing. We have a couple of mothers on with us who will testify to their experiences with that kind of pain. And similarly, there was a curse against Adam that he would struggle to do his work. 
and against the ground, that it would yield thorns and thistles and not just its fruit. So we all have experiences with these curses. It's just the world that we live in on this side of the promised restoration. And so, yes, the curses God announced in the garden are very much a part of our experience in this world. Okay, Kara, you've got a question. Something I really appreciated, um, it was at the very beginning when you were talking about the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake. I had never thought about the seed of the snake not being Satan himself. That, um, I mean, I've heard that verse. I've read that verse. My kids have memorized that verse. You know, I just, um, and I've always thought of it in terms of um, the cross and the resurrection. And so um, I kind of, I thought that that was, that was the story. So um, those were both really eye-opening. Yeah, Kara, you've made a really good observation. There is a distinction between the serpent, who is Satan, and the seed of the serpent, who is uh, someone we're identifying as the end-time political leader of Revelation 13, the beast out of the sea. But if you think about it, one of Satan's goals was to counterfeit what God had promised. And that applies to God's promise of the seed of the woman. So the seed of the serpent is Satan's answer to that, the seed of the woman. It's Satan's counterfeit. And as far as the cross and the resurrection are concerned, those are both extremely important parts of Jesus' story. They're the climax of the story, but they're not the end. They're not where Satan's head is totally crushed, as it will be someday when Jesus returns. And by the way, Paul refers to this in Romans chapter 16 as he, he signs off. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, indicating something remains beyond the resurrection. So Satan does have a seed, the seed of the serpent. But Satan is also personally involved in the counter story. And in the end, the seed of the woman crushes his head. I was reading in Revelations, I think it was chapter 9 or 10. Um, I was talking about the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and talking about the um, lion will lie, lie down with the lamb and, and um, you know, there being peace on earth. earth and it, talking about all the blessings that will be manifest during that time, except for the serpent. The serpent will eat dust. I just thought that was funny because, I mean, that's that was what God said back in Genesis and that he hasn't changed his mind on that. Yeah, Ken, I, I, actually, I think you're referring to Isaiah 65 and verse 25. And that's where Isaiah said that the wolf and the lamb would graze together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. So this is another interesting observation because it, it reinforces that the serpent in the garden was a literal serpent. Uh, some people think that Satan took the form of a serpent, but I don't think that. I think he animated a literal, physical serpent. And it's just one example of so many in the Bible where there is close interaction between the spirit world and the material world, which is one of the core tenets of animism, by the way. So there's two things about this. First, the Bible doesn't indicate that Adam and Eve recoiled or reacted in some other way to a speaking serpent. I mean, that's amazing to me. Keep in mind that the serpent would have been one of the animals that Adam named before Eve was created. So maybe, maybe Adam recognized early on that there was something cunning about the serpent, and so he, he wasn't surprised that it could speak. But again, Adam and Eve did not react 
to the reality right in front of their eyes of a serpent speaking to them. And I just want to say that human beings have always recognized the presence of spiritual power in the world in association with the material world. And so I'm not just talking about ancient history here. I, I think it's still very much part of the world today. And the interplay between the spirit world and the material world will factor into the end of the story as we're going to see in future episodes. But why don't we move on for a minute and see if you guys have any questions specifically about 666. Okay. <laughs> well, um, I had to go back and listen to it again because I did not understand. I was driving when I first had the podcast playing. And I was like, oh, how did we get to 666? I didn't understand. So then I had to go back and then I followed uh, I followed it a lot better the second time when I was paying attention because it's, it's a little bit confusing you know, the sum of the numbers and then, um, but I was in, I was wondering, did the people, you said that the, that was a number that the ancients were familiar with. Um, so that, that, that didn't mean anything bad to them. Yeah. Now keep in mind, Kara, that the ancients came across 666 because of their observations of the sun and the moon and the rest of the heavens. And they discovered patterns and it was the patterns that uh, led them to math and statistics. You know, you know, keeping a tally of something is the most basic form of statistical analysis. And of course, keeping track of days would have led the ancients to the easiest tally of all. They, they knew what constituted a day, evening and morning, followed by evening and morning, and so on. But God had said that he made the sun and the other lights in the heavens also to keep track of years. And it's likely that figuring out the pattern of a year took a lot longer. And so they studied and they made their observations about the mathematical patterns that they observed in the heavens. And there wasn't anything wrong about that originally. So there was nothing wrong for them to feel bad about. Remember, the sun was intended as a metaphor for God himself and for the seed of the woman who is to rise someday with healing in his wings, as Malachi says. But all that was corrupted after the fall. And as for the number 666, keep in mind that there are many ways connected to the math of the solar system and to the zodiac that lead to 666. So far, I've only shared the easiest way for all of us to get this, myself included. So let's go over this again. The number 36 stands for the sun. And it stands for the sun because of the fact that the sun passes through 36 constellations of the zodiac during a given year. And as the ancients played with this and other numbers, they found out that the sum of numbers from 1 to 36 is 666. But, but as I say, there are other ways connected to the same basic facts about the sun and the moon and the heavens that ultimately lead to the very same number, the number 666. And we'll get to some of those calculations as we continue. And here's one more thing. Never forget that the book of Revelation tells us to calculate the number 666. And as we'll see, one of the chief reasons why is because of what we find out about the mystery of 666 and how that mystery does take over the world at the end of the age. Can I ask another question on that? Um, did the New Testament... Like, did, um, did the apostles, like, did they have a connection with those numbers? Or are you talking more like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob times? Or did they all, 
like what is what do you mean when you're referring to ancient and the people being experts? Okay, this is another great question. So let me say a couple of things. First, by the ancients, I'm talking about going back as far as Adam. Adam and his descendants before the flood were familiar with the heavens and they were the first to keep track of the days and years using the sun and the moon and the rest of the heavens. But that system became corrupted and its corruption ended up spreading everywhere. So by the time you get to the New Testament, there is a particular branch of the corruption that's on display in the paganism of Rome and Greece. And there's no question that the apostles would have been aware of it. The paganism connected to 666 was on display in every city. Now, in future episodes, I'm going to tell more of the story of what that paganism looked like and how it spread the way that it did. But for now, I assure you that the apostles were aware of it. Now, keep in mind, it was John the Apostle who wrote that we would be wise to calculate the number 666 at the end of the age. And as for the Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, he had to confront this paganism. The paganism connected directly to everything that 666 stands for. Of course, Paul's main focus was to persuade people to believe on Jesus for who he is and then to leave their paganism behind. And by the way, when Paul uh, went to Athens and Mars Hill, I find it very interesting that Luke identifies one of the men who was saved after Paul spoke as Dionysius. That is the name of a pagan god who is very much connected to all of this. And yet this man gets saved. It's just one of those details in the story that tells us about the awareness that Paul had and the others had, of the paganism of 666 in their day. But it also foreshadows the victory in the end for the seed of the woman. Dionysius leaves his pagan namesake to become a believer in Jesus, the seed of the woman. Oh, in regards to identifying the Antichrist and, and the uh, 666, are you of the opinion that... Um, we're probably not going to be able to use calculation of 666 as a way of identifying the Antichrist before he comes on the scene? Or will it be used to identify, once the Antichrist comes on the scene, will it be used to identify or verify that, yes, this is the Antichrist? Thank you, Kent. I'm really glad for this question. It goes to the heart of why I'm doing this podcast. So once again, keep in mind, Revelation 13 tells us not just to know the number 666, but to calculate it. To me, that means to let the mathematical connections to paganism inform your understanding of their worldview and of the symbols that they attach to their worldview. I believe that these are going to be on display in full as we get closer and closer to the end of the age, and that we're going to be able to recognize them. 666 is just one of those symbols, and there are so many others, and I'll be including them in the story as it unfolds, but let me just give you one other example. Think about the rainbow. God said the rainbow was to be a symbol of his promise never again to destroy the world with a flood. And in other words, the rainbow was to be a symbol of the continuity of God's plan for the seed of the woman, and ultimately for the restoration of all things. But the rainbow as a symbol has been corrupted. Everybody knows that. To most people now, it stands as a symbol of a worldview that, uh, by the way, is very much connected to the same worldview as 666. 
So will we be able to recognize 666? The answer in one sense is a definite yes, but not necessarily because someone is flashing that number, the number 666 in front of our faces. But because of our calculations, we're gonna be able to recognize other symbols and other beliefs and other practices that are featured in the very same system as the system of 666. And as I say, this is going to become so clear as we continue with this story. I mean, there's a lot with the story of Nimrod that was, um, I mean, completely new to me. I, I mean, I think I've heard the name Nimrod um, used as like a derogatory name to somebody, but I think that's like the extent of my understanding of who Nimrod was, or yeah, there's no, there's no understanding there. So there's a lot that I learned from that. Um, I thought it was particularly interesting how they wanted to make a name for themselves. And especially when um, you pointed out that Shem received the blessing. And so they were really like, I wondered, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but were they trying to receive blessings um, of their own accord? Like, I wondered, like, you know, I don't know, I just, that just, it really seemed to hit home, you know, just going. I mean, just on a personal level, I feel like we can do that even, you know, just seeking blessing apart from Jesus, which never leads to life. But um, I don't know, I, that that name just seemed to mean a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, and think about it this way. We live in a time where we still contend with pain and suffering and with illness and death. But we can hardly imagine what it would have been like to live back in the post-flood world. It would have been very, very difficult. And, and the people back then were desperate for the means to overcome the struggle. And one of those means in their minds involved gaining access into the reservoir of blessings in the heavens. And since Ham and his descendants believed they had been cut off from those blessings, that those blessings would be available only through the line of Shem, they set out to make a Shem for themselves. And as we've already learned through the story, they set out to do this through the Tower of Babel. They intended for the Tower of Babel to be a portal into the heavens, a portal into the blessings out of the heavens. So it was their Shem. Okay, so Dale, I think you have something to add here. I'm just thinking about how that the blessings coming through Shem, I mean, that Shem was so many years ago, but then... You know, the story just continues through the Old Testament uh, until we get to the point where the seed of the woman takes on flesh in Jesus. You know, he's actually born the seed of the woman that everyone has prophesied, it's been prophesied about and waited for. Um, I don't know, it just really kind of hit me anew that Jesus was the one that uh, God promised and that he did actually come and take on flesh and uh, lived among the people back then. The blessings he was saying basically were now, you know, he was the blessing. Yeah. Thank you for adding that, Dale, because we really want people to see that. You know, it takes us back to the story of Jacob's ladder and to Jesus applying that story to himself, that he is the connection to the blessings of the heavens from this cursed realm. And it takes us back to something else that I mentioned in the last episode, something that I, I think it would be good to end this episode with. 
And I'm talking about what the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, where he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's who Jesus is. He is our Shem. And we we can count on that. We're blessed by that. And we want other people to believe in him like we believe in him. And so that wraps up this episode. I want to say thank you to Kara, to Kent, and to Dale for their participation. Now, if you'd like to be part of future episodes like this, where we take time to talk about the story, reach out to me through the Seed of the Woman podcast page on gospelstoryarc.org. Meanwhile, we're going to be heading back to the story, looking more closely at the beast out of the sea, and how Nimrod's story helps us to understand exactly what to expect from this infamous end-time political leader. More next time on Seed of the Woman.